We are ready to go with our second week in the series Being Challenge. Uh, some of you were with us last weekend uh, when we had a special guest message from the author of the book that we're using, uh, Zach Zender. If you didn't get a chance to uh, be with us last week, you can go to our YouTube channel and you can watch that message. It was, uh, it was intended to get set up for what we're going to do during the next six weeks as we lean into what it might look like for us to, as a community, try to become more like Jesus. Um, to get started today, though, I have an experiment I would like to do with you to get set up for our topic for today. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, on the screens here, and you can do this at home, it just won't be quite as easy as with everyone in the room. Uh, on the screen here, you can see I have two uh, cards uh, with sets of lines, right? On one, the one on the left, you see a single line that's a certain height, and then on the right, you have three marked with A, B, and C, and uh, they're different heights, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to try to identify which of the lines marked A, B, or C is the same height as the one on the left, okay? And I'm going to ask you to do that just by raising your hand. So um, how many of you think that line A is the same height as the, the card on the left, All right? We have nobody in the room. Okay, how about line B? Raise your hand. Oh, we have one, okay. Uh, anyone think line B? Okay, how about line C? Okay, so clearly the majority of you think that it's line C. Um, well, it seems pretty clear, um, or is it? Uh, in the 1950s, a researcher named Solomon Ash used these same cards to try to study human behavior and asked the same question, showed the same cards, and at the end of the experiment, 75% of the participants went with what was obviously the wrong answer. They chose line A, okay? So are our eyes messed up or what's going on? The, just to let you all know ahead of time, the correct answer actually was C, so most of you got it right. So, so how was it that looking at these very same cards, uh, three out of four people in this experiment would get it wrong? So let me tell you a little bit about how it happened. It was a little bit different than in a church setting like this. He, he had a group of uh, individuals including uh, test subjects, and then a bunch of others who were uh, coached as uh, actors in the experience. And they'd start out and they'd bring people into the room, and they, they'd start out with some super simple ones. Here's card A, card B, find the ones that match. And there was a lot of easy answers early on, so everyone felt good. But then eventually, he would get to this set of cards, and, and along the way, those who were actors would start to obviously choose the wrong answers. And before you knew it, uh, the subjects in the study started to get very disoriented, very agitated. They'd look around, they'd kind of laugh, they'd start to sweat or whatever it is, and then eventually they would choose what they knew to be the wrong answer uh, because the power of all the others in the room was just too much for them to overcome. Um, if there was one test subject in one actor in the experiment, most of the time, they would still go with what they knew was right and, uh, and choose the correct answer. 
If there was one test subject and two actors, they still would stick to their guns and choose what they knew to be the right answer. But as soon as there was three or four or as many as eight other acting participants, they would switch, and three out of four would deliberately choose what they knew to be the wrong answer. Now, what this uh, shows us is an experience that's common to us, actually, and that is uh, that when we are unsure how we are supposed to act in a given situation, whether consciously or subconsciously, we pay attention to the clues of the people around us, the community that we are in, and let that guide our behavior. Now, if you think this doesn't uh, prove my point, I have another way that I can test this out. I'm going to ask for your participation again. Okay? So just a show of hands. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands and then keep them up, and you'll understand why in a moment. So how many of you in the last year have looked online when you've been shopping for something at the reviews on Amazon, Walmart, Target, or whatever? Have you ever looked at an online review of something? All right, go ahead. Keep your hands up. So, uh, and if you don't have your hands up yet, maybe you've looked before, maybe not in the last year, at like TripAdvisor or Expedia or Yelp, and you've tried to look at Consumers Reports reviews, all right? So most of your hands are up. Friends at home, you can still do this too. And if, you, if you're not tech savvy and you've not done any of that, have you ever chose a hotel over another hotel because it was a three-star hotel or a four? Maybe you've splurged and went to a five-star hotel or you've looked at a Michelin star restaurant, right? So by now, most of your hands are up. You can go ahead and put them down, right? Um, one way or another, we often look for and pay attention to uh, the input, advice, uh, and help of others. And it's usually a pretty smart strategy when everyone else around us is correct and the advice that they're sharing is helpful. But there's a major downside when what they're trying to tell us is actually wrong. What this experience shows us is that most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than to be right by themselves or all alone. So what we're going to talk about today is how the community around us, our crowd, you might say, how it matters profoundly in our path of discipleship as we seek to become more like Jesus. So in this being challenge, that's what we're focused on, is, is how do we become more like Jesus by putting into practice some of the habits we see him demonstrating throughout his earthly life as recorded in the Gospels. And last weekend, again, if you weren't here with us, the author of the book, Zach Zender, introduced the concept of a keystone habit. And we're going to explore one of those today. Keystone habits uh, have a way of triggering a bunch of other behaviors for good or for ill, and so it does well to pay attention to them. Another author, Craig Rochelle, uh, he's the pastor of the church that uh, created the Bible app. So some of you use the Bible app. I'll talk about that again in a minute. Uh, he once said, small habits done consistently over time produce major results. All right, so we're looking at the smaller things that we can build upon in our life that over time have a transformative impact on our relationship with God and on all of our lives. It's kind of like bamboo. I don't know if you've ever uh, planted bamboo. My parents have some in their yard in Michigan, and it actually grows in Michigan, which I wouldn't have thought before. But if you, if you study bamboo, what you learn is that most bamboos spend the first several years of their lives building a foundation underground. You hardly see any of the activity, right? It can take up to five years for the planting to get established, and then in a matter of weeks, it can grow 30, 40, 50, 60, 90 feet 
high. But it took five years of small, kind of hidden changes under the ground to produce those kind of results. So we're talking about the small, consistent, maybe easy to overlook habits of a disciple of Jesus that we can build upon in order to become more like him. So these are the six keystone habits. There's five from the book. Commit to community, study scripture, prioritize prayer, seek solitude, choose church. And we added one more uh, as part of our community. We wanted to include lead out. That's part of a supplement to the book that we'll get to in the last week. And our goal throughout all of this series is to use uh, the life of Jesus as recorded in the scriptures and these six uh, patterns, these six habits to help form and shape our own discipling journey, putting into practice Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it, and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. All right, this is the path of a disciple, this is the journey of a Christian, and it starts with paying attention to what Jesus says and does. So the first of these six keystone habits we want to talk about is committing to community. We started out today by talking about how the community around us, people, even strangers, can have a profound influence on our lives. And we're going to start with community because what we see in the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels is that one of the first things he does as part of his public ministry is to choose community. Right? Matthew chapter 4. Thanks for reading that a moment ago. One of the first things that Matt, Jesus does as an adult is choose a few people to be his disciples. Peter and Andrew, James and John. And we're going to come back to those guys in a little moment. But if you look at Mark's gospel, chapter 1, John's go- or Luke's gospel, chapter 6, and John in chapter 2, early on in all the stories is when Jesus chooses community and invites people to dwell and walk closely with him. Now you'd think that of all people, Jesus could probably get through life without needing that kind of network of support. He's, after all, uh, the perfect representation of God. He is sinless. And yet he chose community because he knows that for his sake, as well as all of our own, it is never okay to try to go it alone. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, lays this as a foundation. Uh, It says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Right before there was anything wrong in the world, when there was just one human being on the planet, God noted that we were meant and made for community. And even though since then, uh, there are now more people on the planet than ever before, and we are more connected through technology and uh, in proximity, you'd think we'd be pretty good at community, but in fact, it still is often a struggle. Uh, Right before the pandemic, uh, Cigna, the healthcare provider, uh, did a study of adults in America and discovered 61% feel alone. Uh, My hunch would be that through the pandemic and even afterwards, that number probably hasn't gotten any better. Jesus chose community because he knows that it is not good for us to go it alone, but he also knew that the community you do choose can have a profound and beneficial impact on you. Uh, It's like what uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 13. If you walk with the wise, you become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You see, the habits that we have that form and shape us, they often start with small triggers or cues, and people, 
perhaps are the most significant triggers or cues in our life and in our relationships. So it's very important to ensure that the people that you have surrounding you, and especially who are close to you, help point you to Jesus. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, uh, another study, uh, this one by uh, Schwab, uh, the um, uh, financial services uh, company, 2019 Modern Wealth Survey. You can Google this if you want. They, uh, they came up with a number of conclusions, including this one. Three in five Americans uh, spend more time watching what other people spend and then make their financial decisions based off that than what they have planned for and prepared for and saved up on their own. So it'd be like, for example, you see someone who just came back from an amazing vacation, they post all their pictures on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you're like, oh man, we gotta do that. And so you weren't planning on it, you weren't prepared for it, but you go ahead and you book that same vacation, right? It's like fear of missing out or keeping up with the Joneses. You see your neighbor gets a new car and you're like, man, mine looks pretty dirty and rusty, so I gotta get a new one or a new TV or a new stove or whatever it might be. There's a strong, compelling desire when we see what others have and do to try to become like them. The closer you are to someone, the more likely you'll have the same habits as them. Another study, uh, tracking 12,000 people over 32 years, discovered a number of fascinating things about human behavior, including this. Uh, If you have one friend who's significantly overweight, you are 57% more likely to become overweight. Okay, So just the shape of the people who are around you can help shape you too. And it's also beneficial. If you have a close personal friend who loses a significant amount of weight, uh, the same statistic essentially is true. You're also, or someone in your close circle of friends is very likely to also catch on and lose a bunch of uh, weight. That's why a bunch of people work out together and have uh, gyms where they are members so they can encourage and hold each other accountable. Uh, One last one. This is uh, from uh, Harvard professor David McClelland. Uh, tracked people in their community over, again, a 30-year period and discovered 95% of our success or failure in life is influenced by the community around us. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing the people around us matter. We were made to be in relationship with others and have community. Chronologically, we see it's one of the first things Jesus does. And then we also discover that there may be no more important predictor of the future you that is who you want to be or become, than to look at the people around you right now, the community of current you. So if you're going to try to become more like Jesus and kind of track down this being challenge, if you're going to try to work on any of the other keystone habits, all of which are super important, but you don't have a base of support or encouragement or accountability, what you'll find is it's like you're swimming upstream. Right? Or it's like you're trying to go up the escalator that goes down. You can eventually get to the top, but it's a whole lot harder than if you just go up the up escalator in the first place. If you surround yourself with a community that encourages you to become more like Jesus, the chances of you succeeding increase dramatically. So let's take a look at who Jesus chooses for his community. Uh, first off, we probably think of the twelve. Right, we'll come back to those in a moment. We talked about how he called some of his disciples, but it wasn't just a dozen. Um, here it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that right before Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. That's the term for all the Christians at that time, uh, and all of them at the same time. So there were times where Jesus spent energy and time with large gatherings of people, the crowds, you might say. 
And then sometimes he zeroed it in on, on other large groups. So in Luke chapter 10, we're told he appointed 72 other disciples in addition to the 12 and sent them out two by two ahead of him, right? So not 500, but it's still a pretty big number that he devoted even more time and energy to. And at least a few dozen times in the Gospels, we're told that he narrowed his focus down to just the 12 that he called to be his disciples. He'd take them aside to teach them. Uh, he'd model for them prayer. They uh, lived and ate and drank and slept where he would come and go and stay. And you probably know that among the 12, there were three that were especially close to him. You may even know their names. They are Peter, James, and John, right? Three of the four. I don't know what happened to Andrew. <laughs> uh, poor guy. But um, Peter, James, and John spent uh, even more time with him. Matthew chapter 5 tells us, for example, that Jesus took them into the room when he healed Jairus' daughter. Matthew chapter 17 says, when he went up on the mountain to be transfigured, he took with him Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 26, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, right before his arrest, he goes aside to pray and he invites them to come and sit and watch and pray with him. So here's what's key. As you think about your various communities, whether they're large or very close to you and small, for Jesus, the smaller the group, the more time and access to Jesus they were given. So as you think about your communities, uh, take a look at uh, who is there and the influence and access that they have to you and that you give to them as well. Right, but beyond just the numbers... Let's consider what kind of people, what were their characteristics and behaviors that Jesus invited into his close community. So we'll start with those three, right? We know them perhaps more than the others, Peter, James, and John. What kind of people were they, right? Well, Acts chapter 4 tells us that they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Uh, it says they were unschooled, ordinary men. And as we look through the Gospels, what we see is they also seem to have some anger issues. So like Peter, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when he sees the high priest come, takes out his sword, strikes off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus has to say to him, hey, Pete, that's not what we're here to do. Picks it up, puts it back on, right? Or, or think about uh, James and John. They had a nickname. Do you remember what it was? The Sons of Thunder, right? That wasn't a compliment, I don't think, right? Uh, there's, in fact, one time, it's recorded in Luke chapter 9, where they had gone to visit a village of the Samaritans, and they didn't get the kind of reception that James and John thought they should get. So they said, all right, Jesus, what should we do? Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Okay. Uh, these guys could get fired up and quickly. Or let's go back to John. Some scholars think that John may have had a significant self-esteem issue, especially when it comes to his relationship with Peter. And the Bible doesn't get into this specifically, but there are a few parts of the story that may make this make sense. So, for example, when John writes his gospel, he doesn't name himself, but he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, right? Um, and so it's almost like he's saying, hey, Peter, for the rest of forever, people are going to remember, I'm the one that Jesus loved, right? But there's more to it than that. I remember that story about uh, Peter cutting off the guy's ear? It's recorded in all four Gospels, but, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke just say it was one of the twelve. It's John who wants to make sure we know it was Peter. And when they were running to the tomb, remember it was Peter and John? And John's the one who makes sure that we all know that he got there first. So maybe there's some rivalry, maybe there's some self-esteem issues we don't know. But what we know is that all of Jesus' disciples were imperfect. 
They had their shortcomings, their flat sides, and their failures. And it wasn't in spite of these things that Jesus called them. It was because of them. Think, for example, of the Apostle Paul. Right? He was, uh, when he was breathing out murderous threats, he, he, he was not afraid to, to tell later on uh, all he did to persecute Christ and the church. Um, he had his own heaping pile of mistakes and regrets. But he also uh, asked Jesus on at least uh, three occasions to re- remove part of that. We don't know what exactly it was. He called it a thorn in his side three times. And then, and then Jesus said, and this, by the way, is the verse of the day in the Bible app, so some of you may have seen this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So the people Jesus invites into his community aren't necessarily the brightest and the best. They're not the above average students with their lives perfectly put together. Uh, No, he invites ordinary women and men to draw close to him so they could learn from him, become like him, and experience that within the community that they share together. See, here's the thing. As you think about who your 500, 72, 12, 3, or whatever the numbers might be, Um, are they people who are going to draw you closer to Jesus, right? Um, The one thing that Peter and Andrew, James and John and all the others had that was in common, it wasn't a perfect track record or score. It was that they all were following Jesus. And so among those who are close to you, are there some of them at least who are challenging you to continue to grow in faith and become more like Jesus. Solomon once said this, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. Having godly women and men around us to help challenge, encourage us, and cause us to grow is essential to becoming more like Jesus. Now there's one more thing before we're done. Uh, Jesus had his 500, his 72, his 12, and his three, but he also had his one. Right, the center of Jesus' life was his relationship with the Father. Um, and it directed every decision, every moment, and every day. Some people think that they can go through life as a uh, Lone Ranger solo act, right? Just, just me and Jesus. I don't need anyone else around me. I don't need church. I don't need any community. It's just me and God. And, and you can have a faith that leads to eternal life, but it's never the fullest that it could be. Jesus didn't even go it alone himself. He brought others with him. And so if you want to experience a full life in Christ and all the blessings that God gives, it has to be in the context of this Christian community. And here's the amazing thing. Um, The community that you have will always be filled with imperfect people like Peter, James, and John. But it's through these imperfect people and the work of God to bring hope and healing there that we experience the fullness of God's love here on earth. Think of Peter, uh, impetuous, uh, loudmouth, bold Peter. Um, right before Jesus is arrested, tried, crucified, and killed, denies him three times. Uh, but Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, I'm sorry, uh, third strike, and you're out. Uh, he didn't kick him out of the club. He didn't send him uh, uh, away packing. Instead, he came back to him, found him, and then gently restored him. Or John, who had fled from Jesus in the garden. When he comes crawling back to the foot of Jesus' cross, Jesus doesn't look down from, him, uh, from the cross and say to him, what'd you do, man? Why'd you leave me behind? Instead, he, he commits his own earthly mother, Mary, to John's care. 
because he loved him. And Paul, when he was breathing out murderous threats against the Christian community, uh, Jesus didn't say, sorry, you are disqualified from future ministry and zap him with a lightning bolt from heaven. Instead, he blinded him, he knocked him down, and then he changed his life around so that he would become one of the greatest forces of good for the early church and would go on to change the world. Friends, this is what Jesus did for his closest disciples and what he does for us as well. As we come to him with our brokenness and our imperfection, as we journey through life together in community with others who are also broken, it's there that we find the experience of help, hope, and healing that Jesus wants to bring into this world. And we do see lives and communities transformed as we become more like him. So as we close today, I want you to consider uh, how essential it is for you to experience this life of faith, not alone, but in community with others who will help point you to Jesus. Amen.